Hey everyone, welcome to episode 108 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. I am super excited to present this episode to you. I feel like it is so different than many of our previous episodes of the podcast, thanks to our amazing guest, Shane McDermott. Shane and I have known each other for a couple of years, and I've, I've always found him to be a wonderful breath of fresh air. His perspective on life and photography is so refreshing and thought-provoking. He also happens to have some absolutely incredible work, which you need to check out as soon as possible. In this episode of the podcast, Shane talks about his beginnings as an integrative health provider and how that informed his approach to photography. We define and discuss contemplative nature photography and how Shane's approach to landscape photography is similar but different from that approach. Shane shares his thoughts on visual centricity, awareness, and constant creative flow and how these approaches to photography can change how you interact with the natural world through your photographs. We also talk about Guy Tal's incredible article over on Nature Photographers Network about the mindful photographer and how that approach is similar but different than Shane's. Lastly, we talked about his unique approach to workshops, which he calls Vision Quest Photography. This week on Patreon, Shane and I talk about his experiences of traveling through Navajo and Hopi land in pursuit of landscape photography, and he shares his experiences and thoughtful insights from his interactions with their culture as a photographer and traveler. Well, lastly, I want to tell you about one of our Patreon supporters, Danny LeFrancois. Danny is the proud owner of Banff Photo Workshops and Tours in the beautiful Canadian Rockies. This week, Danny posted a photo that just made my jaw drop. And I'm sure that anyone looking to get something similar would have a great time working with her. She's super personable and down to earth. I can't recommend her enough. She runs private, one-on-one, personalized workshops and photo tours where she will help you with just about anything you can think of. Visit BanffPhotoWorkshops.com to check out all of the different amazing options that Danny has to offer. All right, well, special thanks to our amazing Patreon supporters and podcast producers. Uh, these are the individuals that are really sustaining the show and keep us keeping us running. Thank you to Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stenslin, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Jason Matias, Anton Everine, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Ken Dono, Danny LeFrancois, James Bakavoy, Matthias at Photomagica, Richard Wong, Kelly Buchelern, and Matthew Boone. All right, let's get to the show. Well, Shane McDermott, thank you so much for coming on to F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Oh, thanks, Matt. It's a real honor to be here. Yeah, I'm a, I've been actually uh, secretly wanting to get you on the podcast ever since uh, you and I met on that camping trip. We were on together two falls ago in Colorado where we woke up, I don't know, what was it, like six or eight inches of snow at our campsite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I was so hoping that we would actually be able to come back to camp that night and talk to you more. And and you know, unfortunately, that's the last time we've had like proximal contact. So yeah, I was excited to talk to you more about the possibility of being on the podcast then. And, you know, obviously our day just diverged and um, all sorts of things unfolded, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if you knew what happened, but I actually had to get my car towed that day. <laughs> I know, yeah, Kane told me. I told yeah. Mama. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a fun day for sure. Because I will never forget though. Um, we got up that morning, and uh, Kane and I got up after you did, and we were driving and bumped into you on the road, and and I'll never forget you said what a treat or something like that. Cause we were just enveloped in this thick shroud of fog with all this fresh snow and all the yellow Aspen trees. And it was a pretty amazing morning. <laughs> it really was. And so, well, I didn't expect it. I wasn't necessarily, I mean, it started to snow that night before, right? Quite hard right. We standing by the campfire. And I was excited to see what was going to happen in the morning. And, you know, being my, it was really my first year of photographing fall colors in that area in Colorado. So it really was a treat. I was like so excited to just explore this area that I'd only been in. You know, Kane showed me the couple of days before that. That was my first exposure to that area. So it was totally awesome. Oh, it's it's easily become one of my favorite places. Just um there's something magical about that spot, which I won't we won't type we won't tell anyone where it's at. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so for those that uh, may not be familiar with you and your photography, which, by the way, um, I think your photography is definitely world class, by the way. Oh, thanks. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. So for, for people that maybe aren't familiar with you, maybe tell us a little bit about you and and how you got found yourself uh, as a full-time photographer. Well, mostly full-time. I know you, you kind of do other stuff too, but. Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey for me. And um, yeah, pr probably there's not going to be a lot of listeners who know who I am. I've, I, I, I guess I'm a really private person and I don't. <laughs> hang out on social media. I recognize the importance of it in this era of technology and, and, and exposure. It's something I'm wrestling with. And, you know, I just got onto Instagram, I don't know, in the last month. And that was like 10 years of resistance. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've really just done photography as my own. It's really been my own spiritual practice. Uh, it never... I never intended it to be a business. I think I photographed seriously for six years before I even got a website. I just had thousands of images on hard drive. And it was more about the experience of being in relationship with nature that I was in, interested in, not developing it as a business. So it's been a rather slow unfolding, I guess. Um, and I certainly didn't mm -hmm. come at photography like with a, with, it was accidental. It really was accidental. Um, I, I was invited to a friend's wedding to attend a friend's wedding in Africa. I didn't even own a camera and this was in 2000 and, uh, 
I thought, well, I better get a camera if I'm going to Africa. And should I get a digital camera or a film camera? And I was like, well, I don't know how to put a piece of film in a camera. And that seems complicated. So I'm just going to get a digital camera. So I got just a little Sony CyberShoot and went to Africa. And part of the wedding party gift was uh, a safari. So we all got to go on safari. And it wow. was, you know, it was my first time to Africa. And I, it was just so, it, it, it's hard to put into words. I just started shooting with this tiny little crappy LCD screen on there. And I seen, you know, elephants and lions in there. And I was hooked. I was completely hooked. I was like, holy shit. Why haven't I been doing this? It's like amazing. We got to hang out with the Samburu people and the Maasai tribes. And I was just photographing them like right up close. I, I didn't know you weren't supposed to stick a lens right in people's face. And I just did and got some really amazing photos from literally my first day photographing. There's a, at least three photos on my site under, you know, um, what do I call the gallery? Um, cultural impressions. You'll see photos of Maasai warriors dancing and a couple of Maasai women doing textiles. That was my first day of photography. And I just still love those photos. So it was sort of accidental. I was like, that's amazing. That was your first day. Yeah, it was my first experience. Wow. And unfortunately, my life circumstances at that point didn't allow me to dive into photography. So I didn't really start photographing um, until I was like, until 2004. But that planted the seed, that experience in 2000. And it incubated and I knew I would get to photography soon. And um, once I did, it just, it, it just made a lot of sense to me. And it became so such an integrated part of my spiritual practice. And so to back up further, how I came to photography, I've been self-employed since I've been 17 and uh, it's been mostly, mostly in the holistic health practice. Started out with personal training early on when I was like 17. And then um, my dad and I bought an athletic club when I was 21. And we and I started doing personal training. You know, at 21, I was clashing with my dad. And I was like, I wanted to do things my way. And I thought he was old school. And so I, it was a choice point. It was like, either I move on to something else, or I buy the club off my dad and create what I really wanted to create, which was a holistic health center. So I bought the club off my dad at when I was 24, got a $400,000 loan, gutted the whole building. And this was on Vancouver Island in a community of 20,000 people in, in the eighties. So I developed an integrated health facility where I got in Chinese medicine practitioners, yoga teachers, meditation teachers, body workers, um, nutritionists, and I, and I literally created this integrated health facility when I was 21, and, or sorry, 24, and I ran that for 17 years before I moved to America. So that's been my background of sort of a really deep introspective exploration into my own, into myself, and into better understanding how I could be of service to clients. Hmm. That led to 30, now it's been 33 years that I've had either 
a, a facility of my own or a private practice. Mm-hmm. And the end of last year, 2018, I closed my private practice. And I'm no longer taking new clients. I'm working with a few existing clients, but it was a real conscious and intentional move to um, move to photography full time. I've been teaching photography for 10 years, doing the odd workshop here and there. I have a very tight collaborative relationship with Arizona Highways, and I've taught for them for probably five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for probably the first 10 years of my photographic journey, it was really just about my own practice. And so one of the things I was super curious about, and I know we're going to dive super deep into this later, but that kind of integrated integral health practitioner uh, role that you played for so long. I'm curious, how does, how has that informed your approach to photography? That's a great question. And I, and a couple years ago, I don't know if I could have answered it, honestly. And it, and it created really a massive conflict and rift for me in myself because they seemed so disparate and, and unrelated. For years, I would, I would want to actually move towards photography more full time. But in my, I wrestled with it because in my integrated health practice, I felt so useful and so able to help people make extraordinary Mm -hmm. transformations. And that work felt so gratifying. And then when I would teach photography, I was struggling with finding a depth of meaning in, in teaching because it, for, in my own experience, photography is not about, it's not merely about pretty pictures. I love pictures. Mm -hmm. I love extraordinary, I love creating (laughs) extraordinary images, but it's so beyond the aesthetics of the images. So I couldn't figure out how they came together. And it wasn't until I started really working with that question specifically of how could they integrate? How could these sort of seemingly unrelated worlds integrate? And that's sort of the birth of the teaching that I've developed and have written a book on, which is in publication now or in the design phase to be published called Vision Quest Photography. And it's more about embodied creativity of how we can create through a fully embodied experience and, and break sort of the bias and the particular particularization of a eyes and mind only perspective so that we include our total being in the creative process. Yeah, it took a long time and it was arduous and it was painful to feel like I was, I had a foot in each world and they couldn't come together. Mm. And I, I really feel like it's very coherent now. So I'm not, well, I should say, I don't particularly think of myself as super spiritual, yeah. but I do, I, I, I do mo- most of the time tell people that, you know, nature is my church. And so, yeah. and so I, I can appreciate there being, you know, kind of more of a spiritual experience that comes with being in nature and experiencing nature. And, and that's something that I've never really been able to put into words very well. And the best I can do is through 
you know, through, through photography, but I'm curious, I think what you're describing transcends that experience even further. And I'm curious, what's the way that you would describe it or, or how would you explain this concept to someone who was wanting to go on one of your, on your workshops or something like that? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I would say is to listeners is don't get hung up on the word like spiritual because <laughs> uh, it's so loaded. It's just, it's completely loaded. Words like religion or God or spirituality are so loaded with all sorts of interpretations and they're all fine. They're all right. But don't let that be sort of like a block into recognizing that there's something that happens in our own direct experience when we're in nature we can call it spiritual. We can call it your church. We can call it a religious experience, a peak experience. It doesn't really matter as long as it can inform creativity. So I guess what there's several things I could say about that. You know, I think one of the challenges that photographers can encounter is that we tend to get into a relationship with the objects we photograph. In this case, let's keep it to nature, but it could be anything. It could be fast cars and supermodels and, and, fast, and food. We can photograph anything. And we come into this relationship with the objects we photograph as more of an objectification, as something out there that we're enamored with, that we're seduced by, that we become totally intrigued by and but it's separate from us so it's a it's a boundary of out there and in here and one of the things that i teach in the vision quest approach is ways to start to soften that boundary of what's out there and what's in here because it's really interesting isn't it that we can all move through the field in the exact same environment. And there's something different that's going to cause each and every one of us to stop mm -hmm. and take notice. So if it was merely just objective forms, there's certainly there's some objective forms that we all find interesting, beautiful aspen trees, you know, fully in their fall color, beautiful spring flowers, thunderheads and lightning strikes. There, there are universal things that are very attractive, but yet there's something unique that causes each and every one of us to stop. And what I like to get people to recognize is what actually makes you stop and what, what actually happens in that moment, because something is being enlivened or triggered within. And now we can, be, now we can come into relationship with that moment and with the object, whatever it is. And I think the, the, when we get into this sort of like eyes only or ordinary mind experience, we're going to be governed by our particular preferences. I like asthma trees and not pine trees. I like mountains and not deserts. I'm just using big, broad brush strokes. But <laughs> the, particular, the particularization of sort of our unique personality can really start to limit what we actually see and how we can be in relationship with what we see. So what I like to teach is that we, exp 
expand our creative scope beyond the mind and eyes only, what we just see, to what we see, sense, and feel. Mm -hmm. And that changes the experience quite significantly because if we think about our mind, our mind can hold very elaborative timelines of possibility of historical contexts and in, in future contexts. But in a way, our body and our sensory capacities, our sensory perceptions of the body are much more immediate. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And when we start to attune to our sensory experiences, that we start to we start to reality starts to register in a very different way, in a much more immediate and present based way. So much more information is available. So much more intelligence is available when we stay in connection with our body, when we stay in connection with our breath, when we stay in connection to what we're sensing and feeling. So it becomes what I also say to students is that our cameras aren't the primary instrument of creativity. We are. And so when we can attune and include our total sense of being, now we become a very receptive creative instrument of which we just filter our experience through the lens. Mm. I'm a, I'm reminded of an article that uh, Guy Tal wrote um, for Nature Photographers Network a couple of months ago, uh, where he describes a process of kind of slowing down and being really mindful and present in the location that you find yourself in and taking note of, of what is available to you in terms of sounds and temperature and feeling and, you know, not just the visual elements, but also, you know, other sensations that are available to us and how can those transform uh, your experience, which can then transform what it is you actually focus on in terms of your photography. Um, it sounds like a somewhat similar process. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of parallels. You know, Guy and I've only met Guy once at the uh, Arizona Highways Photo Symposium, but we had a good opportunity to share some food together and just sort of share our experiences. And yeah, there's a ton of parallel and overlap. And I I so love Guy's work and he's a beautiful author and super articulate. And yeah, there's a lot of similarities. You know, and a little bit more I could say about that is you know, when we think about the intelligence of nature, well, if we just look at the natural world, the natural world is so seductive. She wants to be seen. You know, it's like, think about spring and the blooming of all the flowers and, and baby animals. It, it's She's a seduction machine. She wants all species to see and be attracted to each other. And somehow as human beings and our sort of frontal personality, we somehow think we're separate from that. But when we get into relationship with the sort of elemental nature of our body, that you look at the, the prominent elements of nature of air, air, wind, water, earth, fire, all of these 
well, Chinese medicine teaches us this and Ayurvedic medicine teaches us this. All of those elements are present. That's what our bodies are composed of. So we're not separate from that intelligence. We're an expression of that intelligence. So when we can drop our awareness, our consciousness into the elemental makeup of our bodies and our bodies are highly attuned instruments with these amazing sensory capacities of touch, of sound, of taste, of, of visual, and all these senses are fully available to us. And they help us register and notice the full experience of the natural world. And when we can attune to that, nature wants us to see her. She wants to be celebrated. That's why animals come together and bees pollinate flowers. She wants connection. She wants to be seen and celebrated. So when we can attune to that through our senses and what we feel, the whole creative dimension and, and the intelligence of nature opens up to us. I mean, think about it. Like, how do elephants know to go to water holes they've never been to, but their ancestors have? How do a million plus wildebeest know when to migrate or 400,000 cranes know when to migrate. They're just tapped into the intelligence, the informing intelligence of the creative display of nature. And that's all available to us through our bodies. So one, one of the things that, that while you were speaking, I was trying to formulate words to this, but uh, you know, you talk about, this experience of of nature that I think a lot of us have, maybe maybe not quite consciously, but definitely subconsciously. I think most photographers or nature photographers have experienced something like you're describing. And I'm curious, though, in terms of the relationship with between what you're describing and photography, which I think if you boil photography down, it's a very mechanical. Uh, process that you know you're using a machine to express your uh, your creativity. So I'm curious how one takes this kind of approach to nature and experiencing nature, and how how can that translate through that physical um, kind of mechanical process um, into a into a creative one. Yeah, it is an extraordinary challenge, isn't it? Because it seems sort of paradoxical that we have this very technical and mechanical interface, which really puts us in a very different sort of left brain orientation. And we have to start to, that, that you know, any camera interface, and they're getting more and more complicated every sort of evolution of technology more and more menus, more and more buttons, more and more bells and whistles, all of which can actually consume our attention, consume our awareness. So there's, there's a, I think photography is an extraordinary art because it, it asks so much of us that we develop these mechanical skill sets, that we develop a really good relationship with technology if we think of it from uh, a timeline of past, present, and future, okay? If we look into the past, there's so many 
extraordinary master photographers that have come before us that we inherit all that information. It's all available. If we take the time to learn it, it's all available. And that's all from the from the present to the past. And we can bring all that knowledge and insight and skills and technology and, and sort of cultural creativity forward to the moment. But then there's also this creative aspect to the moment where we have to be able to free up enough awareness, free up enough presence to not be completely consumed in all that sort of historical knowledge and stay completely present to the moment and what is. Because if we, if we visualize this sort of like an infinity sign, like the infinity focus sign on your camera, and you turn that horizontally, and that intersecting line is the present, and then the whole bubble to the left would be the past, and the whole bubble to the to the right would be the future. So we have to acquire deep skill sets, capacities that can we can implement quick on the fly, technical, mechanical, information, knowledge, creativity, um, sequencing. And that requires a very particular function of our body minds. And then to stay completely present so that we can stay attuned to our body what's happening in here and how that's affecting and informing what's happening out there and vice versa. What's happening out there informs our internal experience so that we can be responsive to create into the future. So it's like what I, I call it creating from the emerging future that if we stay completely present, use all the knowledge and skill sets that we've acquired from our past and everything that we've learned from others, and we can stay completely attuned, there's an intelligence that we can tap into every single moment, like the elephant knowing where to go for water, like animals knowing where to go to dig and to hibernate and to mate. There's an intelligence in the moment that we that's ripe, that we can attune to, and that's an intelligence that we can use to inform our creativity. And that requires a completely different capacity of our body-mind. That's much more right brain. That's much more body-centric of being fully attuned and present to to what we're sensing and feeling. Not that it eclipses what we're thinking or seeing. It becomes an integration, the expression, so that what we're seeing, sensing, and feeling informs our creative expression in the moment and we can start to that's anticipation wildlife photographers are amazing at this um really good wildlife photographers it's like they know the moment just before it happens that's creating from the emerging Mm -hmm. future that requires a level of presence and attunement to a very mysterious intelligence that is informing the creative expression only here right here right here right here So if we get consumed in the technical and the mechanical aspects of it, our consciousness is no longer present enough to notice what wants to emerge and what wants to be seen. So I think what you're describing is, is a, is a phrase that I think you have on your website, which is um, 
constant creative flow. And I'm curious, first of all, if I'm correct in that, and also if if I am, what are some of the techniques that people can use to stay in that constant creative flow and how will that help them as a photographer? Yeah, great question. It is. It's exactly what I'm talking about. And what I'll also say to students I'm working with is that creativity doesn't come and go. We do. And another way of phrasing that is creativity, the source of creative expression, doesn't come and go. Our recognition of it does. And when we get distracted or sort of consumed in busy mind or thought and we're in our consciousness is in our eyes and head only, then it seems like we lose the creative moment, that it sort of comes and goes. And some shoots will be amazingly creative and other shoots will be just sort of disastrous. I can't see anything. I can't do anything. Everything that I'm doing just seems like it's a waste, whatever it is. Creativity doesn't come and go. We do. And I think to answer your question more thoroughly, it seems like it's really connected to what Sarah wrote in on Facebook. So maybe if we could dive into her question, I could, because you asked what what are the techniques? Yeah, I, I would love to share some of that. I think first, before we can ask ask her a question, we should probably at least define some of the terminology that she's posed in her question. So, and it's one of the things I wanted to bring up just as a kind of general topic talking point, but she uses the phrase contemplative nature photography. And I just, you know, I had not really heard that phrase before, but I think it's, I think it describes kind of what you're, what you've been talking about this whole time, but I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing anything there first. It points to some of what I would say I'm talking about, but not fully. And I think, okay. I think there's sort of like spirituality or word God or contemplative. I think it's loaded up with a lot of assumptions. <laughs> well, so do you maybe want to take a moment uh, to maybe explain what contemplative nature photography is? Well, okay. Yeah. Um, so how I would describe that and keep in mind, this is my interpretation. Sure. And, and you'll see that. Well, yours is going to be better than mine because I don't even have one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you might want to contemplate that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, contemplative photography it would be more like that you're contemplating the moment that there's my definition of this would be that there's a very mindful, your, your, your mind is full of awareness and you're being very mindful of what you're doing. And typically in our culture where we're always doing too much and multitasking and sort of distracting ourselves and fragmenting our, our, ourselves, that when we slow down, intentionally slow down, we can start to notice more. Mm. Our minds can start to notice more of what's going on. You know, it's a part of sort of the cultural disease that I think we're in, that it's expressed through marketing, it's expressed through social media of just flashpoints. They're sort of sound bites that so much of 
what happens in this neon culture that we're in is so flash driven. It's just sort of like brilliant flashes that you're not meant to fully comprehend. You're just supposed to get sort of like a, a, a brief flash and then have that hopefully um, manifest into some purchase decision. <laughs> right. Or, or right? when people uh, post a really, I guess, you know, a very simplistic meme, which is supposed to boil down a very embroiled and complex political uh, problem into a single meme that's supposed to solve the problem. You know, that stuff drives me absolutely bonkers. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great example of it. And it's part of what drove me sort of bonkers about um, Instagram, which is why I resisted it for a long time, because it's eye candy. And, you know, when it's and that expression says so much. Mm-hmm. That's the eyes and ordinary mind only perspective. It's just like swipe, 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 like, don't like, like, don't like. And we're giving a photo, you know, what, a third of a second to decide if it's worthy of eye candy or not. On a two-inch and screen. On a two-inch screen, exactly. Which is why, you know, in, you see in my Instagram feed, which is not very popular, but it doesn't really matter because – I put a poem between every single one of my photos and it's interesting. Each poem that I've posted, every poem gets more and more reads, which is great because it's, it's an invitation for people to actually slow down, contemplate and recognize their connection to the natural world. Mm-hmm. It's not about eye candy. I don't care if people like my photos or not. It's more about the invitation to slow down, get sort of out of the flashpoint neon kind of eye candy culture that we live in and actually feel about mm-hmm. a moment. So that would that's part of what the contemplative approach does resonate in my own approach, but not necessarily the slowing down. Mm. So it's just being more mindful of what we're doing. And that's a, I think it's a necessary step along the way of being more in the constant creative flow. But there's a word that resonates much more with, with the approach and how I teach, which is awareness. Mm. And awareness is really tough to describe. And that, and I, and I'm going to take that, that thread and pull on it with Sarah's question. Okay. But that's how I would define contemplative photography where you're, Slowing down, you're paying attention to what you're doing deliberately, intentionally. You're slowing down. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily the approach that I use. Okay. There's aspects of that that are very worthwhile, and then aspects of it that I think are pretty limiting. Okay. Well, let's just jump right to Sarah's question. So uh, for those listening, it's Sarah Marino, who's a a longtime supporter of the podcast and also a friend of mine and a fantastic photographer in her own right. Her question is, uh, many photographers who are drawn to contemplative photography seem to go smaller in their focus, meaning intimate landscapes and abstract renditions of natural subjects and other types of smaller scenes. Yet in Shane's portfolio, uh, he diverges from this norm and is full of colorful, bold, grand landscapes. I'm interested in hearing how he is able to be 
contemplative when pho- photographing under intense conditions like rapidly changing weather or light. My reason for asking, which I think is common among many photographers, I'm good at a more con- contemplative, slower approach for smaller scenes, but it all goes out the window to the detriment of my experience and results when I'm photographing grand landscapes. And uh, I chuckled there because that's often been my experience as well. Um, I've, I have several examples where, where the light is changing rapidly and I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. So um, I'm, I'm curious, what's, what's your answer? Yeah. So I think the most foundational thing that I teach through Vision Quest is the practice of awareness. And I get it. I, I get asked often, well, what do you mean by awareness? And yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, it's not like a tree or a rock or a lion or a bear that you could point to and go, that, that's it. That's, you know, that's awareness. Or it's like a, it's not a hair that stands up in the back of your neck. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> but it can be the space in which the hair arises. So I'll say more <laughs> about that. Um, so I like to use, you know, in a lot of the Buddhist teachings that I've studied and practiced for years, really unpack this beautifully. And so I will leverage metaphors and analogies to point to awareness. So I'm going to use a few things that I think are helpful. We can visualize, let's, let's play with something there's an image, one of my favorite images, and it's in my favorites gallery. You may have seen it. It's of the aspen trees, these beautiful gold aspen trees and the very blue shadowy forest behind it. Yeah, it's one of my favorite shots of yours for sure. Yeah, and I, yeah, thanks. And I use that image in my teaching because I use that image for this specific reason. I go, well, you can look at the trees and you know, they're gorgeous. The lighting on the trees is beautiful and the details and, and how they're arranged and how I composed it. And it, it's great. Okay. But you can also look at the space in between, look at the space in between the trees. And you can think of any of your own compositions. You've got enough Aspen trees, gorgeous Aspen shots. And probably a lot of listeners have their own shots. So bring to mind a shot of some trees that you like, one that you've taken. And just bring that to mind. And you can start to, and you don't even need to see it on the computer, right? Our best images, we can just visualize those in our mind's eye very easily. Oh, 100%. Yeah, so it's all there, right? Notice all the beautiful details that you spent all the time composing and processing and to bring out all that rich color and texture and tonal gradient and all the the, sort of the magical things that you love about the image. Now bring your awareness to the space in between those trees. And it's a very different experience. Something happens differently, doesn't it? 100%. Yeah. I I can't necessarily put words to it, though. (laughs) No, you can't. Same as I'm having difficulty putting words to what is awareness. When people ask me, well, what is awareness? I can't say specifically, but I can point to things in your own experience that you go, oh, yeah, wait. I mean, I guess I get the, the, best, the best thing that I can come up with, at least from a verbal representation, would be um, that there's a relationship 
between the the trees and the space in between which helps it helps create the image that that you've got there yeah because if there was no space in between there would be no composition <laughs> that's what brings that's the magic of a composition is it's much more about space in between the objects than it is about the objects the objects our ordinary mind and eyes sort of fixate and gravitate to the objects and go, wow, beautiful mountain, beautiful tree, beautiful rock, beautiful animal. But there's also something much more subtle that notices this vast, unbounded spaciousness in between all those objects. And that's vital to the composition and to the creative essence of the expression. And it's present in every photo. You know, I, I recently did a presentation at Nampa and asked the audience, I, I said, so what is the one thing present in every photo ever taken? It's present in every single photo without exception. It's not the sun. It's not the clouds. It's not the sky. It's you, right? It's space. No, because I'm saying every photo it, what, it doesn't matter if it's Sarah's photo, your photo, my photo, Ansel Adams' photo, Guy Tall's photo. It's present in every photo. I'm not present in every photo, but space is. Mm -hmm. And that ties into awareness. And you'll see how this is so powerful when you can really start to connect to this. Here's another way I'll, I'll invite people into experiencing this imagine so remember recall one of your favorite photos that you've taken one per month for the last year so 12 photos total so if you went through your image library and you identified one of your favorite photos from each month this last year <laughs> that's right? hard for me to do because i don't take photos every month <laughs> Okay. Well, if it's every, then your 12 of your favorite photos over the last year, it doesn't have to That's be That's definitely month. doable. <laughs> okay. Okay. And you can visualize those and you can also recognize that every experience was different. The lighting was different. What you were feeling was different. What you were seeing was different. The location was different. The time of day was different. The air temperature was different. What you were hearing, seeing, touching, feeling, tasting was different. Everything was different, 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 different. And you could, you could basically tell me a story about every single one of those experiences, couldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And what it meant to you prior to capture, what it meant to you in the moment of capture, and what it means to you now. And there's a continuity that is present in every single one of those photos. And that's awareness. You, you couldn't tell me what those experiences were if awareness wasn't present. So you can go back from the first photo to the 12th photo and tell me all the subtle differences of what was going on. You needed to be aware of every single experience, both what was happening in here and out there, to recall your experiences of those 12 moments. Well, what links those 12 moments together is awareness, is the space in between every single one of those experiences. 
there's a vast, unbounded, spacious awareness in between every single one of those experiences. Get really interested in that and not just the photos and not just what you were seeing or not just what you were feeling. Become as interested in the space in between those experiences, in those creative experiences, as the experiences themselves. I'm curious because I, I am guessing that you haven't had this particular approach for the entire uh, span of your uh, journey as a photographer. So I'm curious, first, um, how have you seen your photography change over time um, since you've been thinking about it in these terms? Well, I would say that I'm, it's been more, it has evolved for sure, but what hasn't evolved you know, when I, when I think back and I look through my image libraries of my personal favorites, like from the Maasai image that I created in Africa in 2000 to my most recent image on Vancouver Island, and I look back at all the experiences and all the, you know, photographic experiences I had and all the knowledge that I acquired and skills that I, I acquired and all the photos I fucked up and all the experiences that were disastrous and all the experiences that were wondrous. The one thing that is constant is awareness. There's, I, there's something that's unchanged in all those experiences. And that's really interesting to me. I can, I could give you all sorts of, you know, specifics of how technology has changed my photography and how my capacity to see and compose and, process has changed my photography radically. But what has most most impacted my creativity is that is being more interested in the space in between my experiences rather than all the particularities of my experiences. It's not that they're, they're not important. It's just recognizing the space in between is is always now is always now it's it we can't get out of it we can no longer recognize it and we can sort of get fixated on our camera or all the settings and what's out there and lose recognition of the moment which is open spacious unbounded and so to get to sarah's question specifically you know as a photographer we can have sort of two views in my in my mind we can have the view of our out of our personality our view can be the primary personality or sorry our personality can be the primary view or we can have awareness be the primary view and when we're looking through the eyes and mind of our personality we're going to have strong preferences and biases of what we like and don't like, what we're attracted to and not attracted to. When we can learn to connect to awareness as primary, then that space is unbounded. It doesn't have to be slow. If we're in our minds with an intention of slowing down to notice more, which can be a useful practice, not saying it isn't, but then everything has to happen slow. And in nature photography, as you know, 
things don't always happen slow. It's very dynamic. It's very explosive. It's very fleeting. It's very impermanent. And if we're, if we take the view, if we learn to inhabit the view of awareness as opposed to the view of personality, then from awareness, we can be so responsive when we're in this unbounded body mind of open, spacious awareness. We can be responsive, receptive to whatever's happening in the moment on the fly. It can be completely dynamic. And then we can run around, look like we're running around with our, like a chicken with our heads cut off. But it's an intelligence that is informing that. And there's an awareness, there's an abiding awareness that informs our actions so that we can move fast. We can be absolutely still. We could sit there for six hours if we needed to, waiting for a bear. Or we can just be on the fly quick and gone. If we're doing that from our personality, that view, it's much tougher because everything about our, our sort of personal experience changes. Our thoughts change, our bodies change, our feelings change, our senses change, the world around us changes. Everything's changing. And then we get caught in this constant sort of frantic go, 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 go. When we can learn to cultivate awareness and presence, we can move sort of like the animals in the end. In the, you know, we see this in predator-prey relationships all the time. It's like the gazelles just slowly eating, feeding, grazing, and then in a nanosecond, it's explosive and gone as the cheetah is after it. <laughs> It's so present, so attuned to the intelligence of creativity and to the dangers of possible predation. Gone in a nanosecond. It's not, it doesn't have to be slow or contemplative about, well, I put my right hoof forward and then my left. And then, and then I'm dead. Know, <laughs> and, then I'm, and then I'm dinner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. <laughs> well, that makes me feel a little better about myself because I often find when I'm in those moments um, of running around like a chicken with my head cut off, um, it's not that I'm frantic. It's that I see something that I feel like, and maybe you're kind of chuckling a little because I'm using the word see, but yeah. the I I can visualize, I guess, is a better way to put it. That, that, that there's something else that I can capture creatively with my camera from a different location or a different angle if I just, if I move, but I have to be quick because of the dynamic nature of the particular scene that I'm shooting. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, that depending on your sort of view, if it's, just limited to your personal preferences, well, then there's going to be certain dynamics that you're attracted to and certain dynamics you won't even notice. But if it's done from a place of awareness, then you'll notice everything. And there's still preference. And that, there's not a problem with preference. That's what makes all of our images so unique. But from the view of awareness, there's much more choice to notice and respond to things that we may, that our personality may not prefer, but is actually beautifully creative, mm. if that makes sense. It does. 
I'm I'm greatly appreciative of how difficult some of this stuff is to put to words as well. <laughs> yeah, it it is because so much of it is the, so much of it is experiential. It is, yeah. I'm, I'm, I love that you said that, Matt, because another thing that I say to students is that really there's nothing that there's nothing new that I can teach you, and I really authentically believe that because when we check back, like just use that one photo a month or 12 photos over the last year experiment. And you'll see that I don't have to teach you awareness. It's always there. It's the continuity that weaves every experience of your life together, not just the photographic experiences, all your experiences, big and small, slow and dynamic. It weaves, awareness is the continuity of the thread that weaves all of our experiences together. And all I'm doing is just sort of helping with some subtle ways of shifting the mind to notice what's already there. Mm -hmm. It's all, this is already present in everyone's experience. And I think nature photographers have a, probably a, um, a better recognition than most people. But Mm -hmm. if we can sort of, get out of the habitual forms of historical creativity, be more sourced in the present moment and be very curious about what wants to emerge. What is the creative expression that wants to emerge beyond our particular preferences moment to moment? Now there's a whole creative world out there and in here that opens up that's much bigger than our personality, much bigger. Have you had any experiences where you were uh, very surprised by the end result that came out of um, that awareness that, you know, maybe in the moment it wasn't necessarily, I don't know, you weren't expecting there to be a great image to be had and then through your awareness and through that process, you were surprised by what you were able to create? Yeah, for sure. I think, well, when I look at my images that I think reflect my strongest presence of awareness in that creative space, it's endless surprise. It's really endless surprise. It's like, I think that's one of the qualities that... um, that is so important to my creative process is just intense curiosity and fascination. You know, I could do, I could use that Aspen shot that we were talking about earlier as, as, an, as an example. I created that up in, um, on the Kachina peaks near Flagstaff in uh, Lockett Meadow, Aspen Leap, Aspen Loop Trail. And it was way after peak. There was almost no leaves on the trees at all. And, and I showed up way before sunrise. It was still dark. I started doing the hike in the black dark with my headlamp and was slowly getting lighter and lighter. And just the way the San Francisco peaks is shaped, it's Lockett Meadow sits in this deep bowl and sunrise, there's a peak um, to the north or yes, to the north that gets first light. I forget what the peak is called, Um, but it got first light, not direct light. And in that bounce light, those aspens started lighting up. 
but mm. it wasn't what I was seeing. It was, I wasn't even facing that direction. I was just sort of standing there, just receiving the moment, just sensing and feeling the moment. And it was like this illumination within. It's not the quality of light without. It was the quality of light within that really started to become luminous. And then I started to walk around and started to notice this luminous glow on the trees. But it was with awareness. I wasn't like analyzing the environment out there looking for light. It was just receiving the moment. And it was a complete surprise. I wasn't expecting that image at all. And it's like, per, it's one of my top three favorite images, if not my very favorite. Mm. And it was because the experience was so rich and illuminating from without. And, and that experience informed how I captured the image, how I seen and felt the image in the moment, and how I processed the image. It was awareness, was the continuity to the whole experience. And it was super surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious if, if listeners have had similar experiences where, you know, they weren't using the left brain to, like, you know, seek out light or whatever, but that they were just aware of what was happening in the moment. I feel like that, that definitely, I don't know if it's a skill that you're describing or if it's, I think it sounds like you're more of a proponent that it's something that it's something we all have inside of us. Um, But it does seem like through, through mindful practices, we can become more in tune with that part of ourselves. Yeah. I don't see it as a, is a capacity that we have to chase after and develop. I, I believe it's just recognizing what's already there. This is, this is so innate to the human condition, to the create, to creativity itself and the human condition. Another analogy that I use, Matt, that is interesting and, and I think super useful in sort of getting people to recognize this is, already present in their own experience. It's like if everyone just imagines their three favorite images and I go, okay, well, I want to invite you to go back to that experience. Well, actually you can't go back. Just recognize the experience right now and start to notice what were you experiencing in the moment beyond just what you were seeing? What were you feeling? What were the emotions that were present? What were you feeling? How did your body feel in that moment? What was the ground conditions like? The environmental conditions like? Were there other people around? How did they impact your creative experience? Or maybe you were by yourself. Was the wind blowing that day? Could you feel the sun on your skin that day? Was there any noticeable smells that day? <laughs> I definitely could. I definitely found myself nodding along as you were asking those questions because, yeah, absolutely. I can answer, I can check all those boxes 100%. It's exactly. And the only reason you can do that, Matt, is because you were aware. But there's a way that our sort of 
if we're in the view of the personality or, or sort of our mind and eyes only perspective, so much of that gets sort of dismissed, not deleted, because all I had to do is, you know, invite you to reflect back on that experience. And all of that creative intelligence was there. The whole experience just filled out for you again. So it's, it's already there, but our, our sort of constant thinking mind and eyes objectifying forms out there sort of dismisses all that as relevant to the creative experience. But yet when I go, recall all that, there it is. Why? Because you were aware. That's awareness. I think what's also interesting is that if you think of other images that you might have that may not be your favorites, but they might be even better quote unquote photos, or they might be better sellers or whatever, whatever metric you want to put on the photograph. I, I, I often find that I have images that are better than that favorite image, but I can't check all those boxes. I can't, I don't remember, was it windy or not? I don't remember the way the ground felt. I don't remember like what, what it smelled like. So I think that's also very interesting that that the relationship that we have with the images that we create uh, often is so intertwined with how well we remember the experience. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Huh. And the more we're in our mind and eyes only perspective or view, I think a lot of that information is either not noticed or lost. When we're more attuned to awareness and what we sense and feel, as well as what we think and see, then a lot more of that information, that creative intelligence that's informing the moment is available to us. Hmm. Wonderful. <laughs> I mean, that's it right there. I feel like uh, so much of nature photography for me is, um, at least in the last year, it's really how how can I be true to this experience? And I think when you start to use that as a metric for how you create images, it definitely yeah. changes the end result significantly. Boy, yeah. Yeah. Tremendously. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was how does this relate to 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 wildlife photography? Because I know I, I took some time to, on your website and I and I noticed and I think others have noticed that you have some exceptional wildlife photography and um I was curious if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your passion for the spirit bear, or I guess what's called the Kermode or Kermode white bear. I'm not, might've butchered that a little bit, but what's, what's your connection there and, and how has, um, how has that played in with your philosophy for taking photos? Yeah. Great. <laughs> Love the Komodo bear. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that was one of the more profound experiences that really just solidified this as like, holy shit, this is so real and such an important part of the creative process. And it was the spirit bear that introduced me to that. So this was probably in, I think it was 2007 or eight. I was leading a photo tour up in the Great Bear Rainforest, which is central coast of British Columbia. And we were going up there to hopefully find spirit bears. Spirit bears are incredibly rare. There's 
and they only exist on Princess Royal Island on on the central coast of British Columbia, which is a big ass island. It's huge. And it's all old growth rainforest. So it's dense. And there might be 100, 150 bears in there, white bears. And it's massive. So it was like the biologist we were working with and our, and our tour guide was um, the, like the boat captain was like, you know, don't be disappointed. We're going to see a lot of wildlife, a lot of marine life, grizzly bears, some black bears. Don't be disappointed if you don't see a spirit bear. And the biologists were going, you know, we've been in the Great Bear Rainforest for four years and we've seen the butt end glimpse of one running away. That was it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so that's pretty sobering. So don't expect to see a spirit bear. <laughs> and um, we're sitting down in the galley of this big, beautiful 72 foot boat that we were staying on for five days. And we had only. We'd flown in on the float plane, got onto the boat and set sail to go into the strait towards um, towards the estuary. And we weren't on the boat 20 minutes and the captain's yelling down, everyone get up here, get up here, spirit bear, spirit bear. And we all scramble up on deck. And these are really high cliffs, um, like old growth forest mountains that just sort of plunge into the into the ocean. And he's pointing to this tiny little white object way, way up on the mountainside. He's going, that's a spirit bear. <laughs> it's like, great, awesome. Looks cool. And uh, But we couldn't photograph it. But I got this feeling, and this is what I, I'll go back to creating from the emerging future. You know, I think what has served my photography so well is I've been meditating daily for over 20 years. It's been a regular part of my daily practice. And that's all about awareness. And I had been meditating for 10 years before I discovered photography. So I trust that. There's what I call subtle super senses, which is instincts, intuition, higher mind. Those are what I call super senses that are beyond our five senses. And I've learned to really trust that. I've learned to really trust that through my holistic health practice, treating clients. And I've learned to really trust that in nature. And in that moment, I was like, that bear, there was this beautiful log formation right down at the water, like just, a, I don't know, 10 meters above the waterline. And it was a seven. It was a, these two fallen logs. You can see, it's under my favorites gallery. You'll see a white bear across this log. And I said to everyone on the photo tour, I just told the captain, anchor the boat, we're gonna stay here. Let's have lunch, do whatever, but this might be our only chance to see this bear. And I said it just ballsy. I said, that bear is gonna walk across the top of that number seven log. So set up your <laughs> cameras, get your you know, 100 to 200, 200, 400 lens, compose that and I just set up my camera, locked down the tripod, and that was the only shot I was interested in, and I knew it would happen. And we had lunch. The bear was 800 meters, half a mile away from that log when we seen it. And we just set, set up. We had lunch, talked, watched the bear come down the mountainside, and I just kept saying, he's going to walk across that log. Set up your camera. Set up your cameras. I must have said it two dozen times, honestly. <laughs> and 
People are starting to be like, okay, I don't know if I can believe you, buddy. <laughs> no, they were going, he's not walking across the log, Shane, you're delusional. It's like, okay, well, no one set up their cameras. And now the bear's like, I don't know, 100 feet from the logs. And I'm like, set up your cameras. He's not going to walk across the log. They're photographing him. But they're, you know, they're just, they're just sort of like not, they're blowing me off. They think I'm ridiculous at this point. <laughs> and I was questioning myself even at that point. But I just had my camera set up. And sure enough, the bear walked across the log and no one else got the shot. And that's part of what, it's like a tuning. It's like just, you know, the, our rational mind is going, well, I heard it from everyone else on the tour. And I heard it even in my own self. It's like the chance of that bear walking across the log is zero to nil. It's like, but I was like, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I just knew it. And it's learning to trust. But if I get into my mind only perspective, there's no way in hell that's going to walk across the log. And it's like, why did we even stop? Right. That's an informing aspect of creativity that I've just really learned to trust. Mm. I've learned to cultivate it through intentional practices like yoga and meditation. I've learned to cultivate it and refine it in my practice with clients. And I've learned to refine it and practice it in my every experience in nature. And that's a huge part of my creativity. So if, if somebody's listening and, and they're kind of curious how, how to take a simple step to having a similar experience, what is, what's some practical advice you can give them to maybe try it out? Well, yeah, go into nature without your camera. That would be my, my first advice. And I get all, every workshop that I do, we do nature walks without our camera and it drives some photographers wacko. And, but when they do it, it's, it's really powerful because what ends up happening, I call it a zoom mind perspective. So when we're behind the lens, depending on the focal length that we've got attached to our camera, it can start to reduce our eyes and mind only perspective to that focal length. And that's sort of the only world we see mm. when we can put our cameras away. There's a practice that I guide people through where we'll just walk through nature, no cameras, nothing. And stop when, when, when something calls you to stop, stop because there's a particular something that has caught your attention. And without our cameras, we can start to practice what I call global and local awareness. That there's something specific, maybe a little flower bloom, or maybe a particular bend in a tree, or a particular way the light is, you know, dappling the grass. There's something local that's got our attention. And then I just get people to hang with that local point of seduction, we'll call it. And then simultaneously, without losing attention to that specific, allow your awareness to open, allow your awareness to become unbounded, start to notice everything else around you, feel 
everything else around you. And start to get into the practice of being able to hold specific attention and vast unbounded attention or awareness simultaneously. And we can do that through all senses. You know, another practice I get people to do is once you have that, once you've noticed something specifically, you've seen it, it's like, oh, that grass, oh, that tree, that rock. Okay, great. Close your eyes. Feel that rock. Feel that tree. Feel the wind. Touch. Allow nature to touch you. We're so used to touch as being everything that we can grab with our hands. That's our prime. Our touch has been sort of reduced to our hands and to our, to our fingers. But allow nature to touch you. Allow the sounds, the smells, the touches, the tastes of nature to inform the moment beyond the rock, beyond just seeing the rock or the pretty flower. And then we can start to learn to clearly and cleanly differentiate our five senses. And we can start to see that if we give more of our awareness to what we hear, then what we see, our experience gets fuller. If we allow our what is being what what of nature is touching us on top of what we're hearing and inclusive of what we're seeing, our experience becomes fuller, richer, more informing. So that we can start to differentiate these sensory experiences and then integrate them into a fuller creative expression moment to moment. But that takes focusing on the specific and then simultaneously allowing our awareness to include more of what's around us out there and in here. We notice the clouds. We notice the light. We notice the other rocks and the other flowers. We notice more out there. And with this unbounded spacious awareness, we notice more in here. Oh, it's not just what the flower looks like. I'm smelling the flowers. I'm being touched by the wind and the light. And I'm sensing so much more. But I'm still holding my awareness specifically on this beautiful little flower. Now we can start to move through nature, noticing the specifics, but being completely aware of a much larger dynamic that's at play, both in our interior experiences and the world around us. Yeah, I feel it probably goes without saying to you, but uh, I feel like that sort of practice, um, I think what you're describing is pretty correlated or very similar to you know the practice of mindfulness. And I think it probably has a lot of practical applications outside of nature and outside of photography. And I'm curious if that's something that you also practice outside of nature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's just sort of my way of being in the world. You know, awareness, the better I can get at recognizing and stabilizing my connection to awareness, it brings a fuller experience to every experience of life. What I'm, how I'm doing my yoga practice, how I'm 
being with family, how I'm being with friends, how I'm relating with food, how I'm doing my work. Yeah, it, the whole experience of life becomes much fuller, richer. And and I, I noticed that I have a capacity to just sort of soften around my preferences. Yeah, I still have preferences. You know, I there's ways that I dress and there's ways that I do or don't do my hair that I prefer. And there's certain foods, foods that I prefer and certain kinds of movement I prefer and certain kind of people I prefer, but it doesn't feel rigid or it feels like I have a lot of space around that, around my preferences so that specifically to nature, I, 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 and even just photography, I'm fascinated with, Mostly I'm fascinated with nature photography, but I feel like I can see, feel, and sense any kind of connection to photography. I love the macro scenes. I love the big, vast landscapes. I love indigenous cultures. I love wildlife. Wildlife specifically, because I don't think I address that question thoroughly enough, that's the local and global awareness practice right there. You know, most landscapes, yes, it can be very dynamic and things change constantly, but mountains don't move and <laughs> trees don't relocate on the fly. But there's something really amazing about wildlife and particularly bird photography. God, I love bird photography. It's so challenging. It, and you, there's nothing, you can't be slow and contemplative about bird photography. Well, from the contemplative perspective, you can't be slow. You have to be lightning fast right. with yeah. birds. You have to anticipate. <laughs> yes. You have to be in that creative space of what wants to emerge, what wants to emerge. It's creating from the emerging future a second before it happens. And there has to be anticipation and there has to be a high level of awareness and the capacity to hold local and global awareness simultaneously. And I love that about bird photography, that even though if I'm looking through the left eye into the camera, my right eye, I'm holding awareness, I'm feeling, I'm listening, I'm sensing so far beyond the camera and the bird, but I'm still holding fixed attention on the bird. And that's, I think that's a skill that people can develop. The awareness we all have, and hopefully some of the analogies I've used have helped point that out in your own experience. It's not something we have to chase and acquire. It's already there. It's already there. Sure. No, I, I definitely can totally see that in my, thinking about my own experiences so that I think it's easy to connect to that uh, for sure. So I appreciate you using the analogies. <laughs> Here's another analogy that I think is really powerful. And it's the, it's the analogy of dominoes. If we, if we visualize a thousand dominoes and we, it's sort of the way the ordinary mind works of these sort of constant flashpoints of distraction that get our attention and then it's gone, gets our attention and gone. If we think of the thousand dominoes are like thoughts, okay? So a thousand thoughts that run through our mind in an hour. And if we put those dominoes super close to each other, not touching, but almost touching, and we line up those dominoes and we push the first one over, 
it seems like it's continuous movement. Like every thought, which is every thought is represented by a domino. Every thought that falls hits the next false, hits the next thought so quickly that it feels like a continuous stream of thought. There's no breaks. And that's typically the way most or most people in their sort of everyday ordinary mind works is that it's one thought, one feeling, one idea, one distraction after another, after another, and they just sort of all collide with one another. And it seems like a continuous stream of thought. Now, if we take those same thousand dominoes and we space them to where if one domino falls, it doesn't hit the next one. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Now a thought arises, a feeling arises, a sense arises, an intuition arises, and it's allowed to arise and liberate or dissolve in its own space before the next one arises. Now we start to notice the space in between. We notice the space in between our thoughts, our feelings, our senses, our different photographic moments, our different experiences in nature. And each one has the spaciousness to be its own distinct experience. Hmm. And then we can choose in that spaciousness, we can have much more freedom of choice and how we want to respond to the creative moment. And we notice so much more because there's so much more space. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in photography, that just creates a much larger inventory from which you can create from. It really does, doesn't it? Right. Because if, if you're taking a moment to kind of make, take an inventory of what's, what you're feeling, both visually, but also what can you hear, what can you feel, etc. Maybe what grabs your attention is the f the sound that the grass is making when the wind blows through it. So maybe you're like, oh, I really want to incorporate that subtle movement in the foreground. So I'm going to use a, a slower shutter speed to kind of showcase how that wind is blowing through the grass or something like that. Whereas before you might think, oh, I need a, a fast shutter speed because I don't want the, the grass to be moving. So I think it does, it changes the way you approach the creative aspect of making images. I love that example. That's, that's such a poignant example. Exactly. Cool. And so just to allow that, what you're seeing, sensing, and feeling to inform the creative moment. And then that just carries over into post-processing. Post then we can start to carry in that sense of what you heard in the moment and how that wind touched you you can work that into your post-processing now. And now it becomes a continuity. The creative moment becomes a continuity through the entire process from capture to experience to finished processing. Mm. I love that. Something, definitely something to try. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, cool, man. So Shifting gears. So who, who do you think our listeners would like to hear on the podcast? Who, who would be some good people for us to learn more about? Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's a couple of photographers that I think 
One is a very good friend of mine, Kathleen Reeder. She's a, um, I think she's a phenomenal wildlife photographer. She's just got such a, a, a decisive eye for the moment. And I love her work and I've gotten to know her this past year. And I think she's, she's very articulate. I think she's a very soulful photographer. And I think she'd be a wonderful interview for the podcast. Excellent. And another photographer that I've really admired over the years, another wildlife photographer who I seen his presentation at Nampa of his work in the National Wildlife, uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, in particularly the polar bears. And his name is Florian Schultz. And just a rock solid, super grounded, very humble guy that just does extraordinary work. And I think both of those would be fabulous interviews. Awesome. That's great. And earlier I heard you mention uh, on the other part of the podcast, you said Doug Kepsel. And I've I've always, um, I've heard some stories about him from some of my friends like Kane and Michael Bellino. And he's a, yeah. he's a guy that I've always been really interested in learning more about as well. <laughs> Yeah, Doug's a good friend of mine. Um, we've shot together for years. And wow, it's been really fascinating to just, you know, we spent a lot of time together in the backcountry photographing and just sharing our experiences. And I so admire Doug's sort of creative evolution through photography. I think he's, we're so, so different, <laughs> but he has such he has a very calm demeanor to him as well, which I, which I find really attractive to just be around people like that. He seems he's very methodical in how he goes about things. And he's really taken on the challenge of learning the technical, mechanical aspects of photography. I think he knows it far better than I do. Mm. And, um, He's, he just is a, and, and to see how his images have evolved over the years is really extraordinary. Like I just went on his website, I don't know, a couple of months ago and looked at a lot of new work. It's like, wow, he is so blossomed into a seriously good landscape photographer. So that can make a very interesting interview as well. Yeah, I think that would be too. And I, I, I really like I like his stuff a lot. And I've heard, like I said, I've heard some interesting stories about him. So I think he'd be an yeah. interesting dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is definitely. Yeah, cool. And, he, you know, he, and similar to me, he's taking on this big challenge of moving to photography full time. And you know, he's older than I am, and that says a lot about his passion and commitment and his love for nature. So yeah, absolutely. I think Doug would be great. Cool. Well, Shane, this has been really fun. Uh, one of the, uh, I'll have to say one of the most thought provoking and memorable podcast episodes that, that I can remember. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Real pleasure, Matt. And, um, I hope listeners find some of what I shared useful. And if, um, you're wanting to learn more, there's tons of information on my website and feel free to reach out and contact me. Um, it, yeah, I'm, I love teaching and I love sharing. Yeah, I look forward to connecting. Yeah. And hopefully we can cross paths in the field this year. That would be great. Yeah, um, hopefully I'm 
I might try to sneak a day or two here if Kane Kane will let me know where you guys are going to be at. Okay. Uh, yeah. But before we close out the podcast, I was curious if listeners wanted to learn more and and kind of do kind of one of I guess you call them vision quest workshops where you teach a lot of these mindfulness uh, exercises and techniques. How can people learn more about that and what what can they expect to experience? Yeah, great. Um, you know, this is a, a teaching that I've been dis- I've been teaching versions of it for five years through my workshops with Arizona Highways. And then they wanted me to sort of distill this teaching into some kind of format. So they were like, write a book on it. It was like, oh my God, all right, I'll try. (laughs) And it's taken a long time, but it's pretty much done. And so we're, we're also wrestling with how to offer it in the best way. And we had, you'll see this on my website that I have to change this. I've been going through a six week beta group, a test group of teaching this online. Mm. And it's become apparent that that's not going to be the best way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the online teaching on my website, that's currently there, depending on when you post this, or I'm not even sure if this is live or what, but it'll be gone. The online teaching won't be there. Instead, what we're going to do, and we're going to offer the first one this October, is going to be a Vision Quest photo retreat. So there's two formats currently that I teach this in. Vision Quest photo workshops, which I weave aspects of field practices, of sensory practices, of nature meditation walks, of some seated seated focus meditation work in between photo sessions. So I weave aspects of Vision Quest into the photo workshop. But in the photo workshop, it's still about great locations in the best light. But I do very intentionally weave in some pretty powerful teachings on the Vision Quest method. The Vision Quest photo retreat is very different. Mm. That focuses on the teaching primarily, and it's not about the best light and the best locations. It's about the best capacity to be present and attuned. So we work with the teachings very extensively, written material, guided audio meditations, video productions I've done. And in and so we would spend five days together really working through specific strengths and weaknesses of each photographer and developing those through awareness practices, through meditation practices, through sensory practices, through embodiment practices, with and without the camera. And there'll be still great opportunities to get great photos and great locations, but that's not the primary emphasis. It's about learning to transition the view from ordinary mind eyes only to more of an awareness space or what I call awakened mind body perspective. So it's about making that transition from um, ordinary mind to awakened mind. And then what are the practices to bring that into our body so that it fundamentally changes your experience of creativity. So then you work with that after the retreat in your own photographic experiences to refine it and integrate it more thoroughly. But 
in that five days, I, I have a great opportunity to work with each photographer very specifically to address sort of their unique weaknesses and strengths and leverage their strengths and fill in their weaknesses creatively. And then they can take those into practices in the field after the, the retreat. And there's also a follow-up one month online integration practice for all the retreat participants. So it's a really great way to just embody creativity, creativity in a very, very different way and awaken a different capacity of creativity, Mm. sort of getting out of our habitual sort of mind only eyes only perspective of creativity. Wonderful. Well, um, I will definitely post a link to all that in the liner notes for the podcast. So people can, can check that out if they're interested. And I will have to say that that actually sounds like something I feel like I could get a lot out of. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah you're welcome, Matt. Um, I really appreciate that reflection. Um, so when I have the retreat, when I have the retreat itinerary f- designed, which I'm doing right now and post it to my website, could I forward that to you and maybe you could forward it to your listeners? Oh, of course. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Not no, a problem. We're booking one. We're scheduling one retreat for October and then another one for next April. Beautiful. Sounds great. And I would love to have you join me if, if you're interested. That would be fantastic. Awesome. Well, Shane, this has been um, a real pleasure, and I appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. And Absolutely. Be well and hope to see you in the field very soon. Cool. All right. Well, thanks to Shane for the thoughtful discussion and for sharing his mindfulness approach to photography with us. I hope that his way of thinking and approaching nature is something that you will try as well. Well, just a quick reminder, we are doing something new over on Patreon. Patrons of the podcast are encouraged to participate in our themed photo contests by submitting them to the community board on our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash fstop and listen slash community. The current theme is backlit. I really want to see your photos that best represent a subject that is backlit, either by the sun or some other light uh, source. I'll send the winner some awesome stickers that Phil Monson created. And one last thing, another fantastic way to support the podcast is to use our B&H affiliate link, which is linked here in the liner notes and also over on my website for the podcast. You can follow us along on Instagram or Facebook as Matt Payne Photo or F-Stop and listen. Thanks for listening. Next week is Albert Dross. He joins us all the way from the Netherlands for a great discussion. Hope to see you there. Take care.